Well then, with a view to the uh, blessing of God and his help and guidance, let's turn to Mark chapter 2 again and the passage that we read from verse 1 to verse 12. And in verse 5 we read that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And uh, tonight we're turning to another of Christ's miracles in Capernaum. You'll remember, as I mentioned in the morning, this is the city where he now lives where he will preach most sermons and perform most miracles. And in the morning we saw him casting an evil spirit out of a a demon-possessed man, and tonight we'll look at him healing, healing a man who is paralysed. Now with healings, I think we perhaps need to step back a little bit and remember the connection between Christ the healer and Christ the preacher. Christ the healer who heals the body and Christ the preacher who heals the soul. And there is a a connection. It's a very deep one. But I think, first of all, we need to remember that as our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ delivers us from our soul's sin and from our body's sickness. Uh, Just because we are not always healed in this life doesn't mean that the Lord is not healing us from our sicknesses. The fact of the matter is that he does heal the sicknesses of all his people. And the reason I emphasize that is because we are all too prone to forget that although he permits our bodies, eventually, even if he does grant us healing, he permits our bodies to finally decay and die, nonetheless, he raises all these bodies of his own people in perfect conformity to his own glorious body, without even a trace of any sickness or disease that may have had, they may have had. So, in that way, it's important to remember that the Lord does eventually heal. Just as he cleanses your soul eventually from all sin, and all its stain and its misery, so he delivers your body from all diseases. That needs to be remembered. But the connection, of course, is deeper than that. Because the way in which Christ heals people during his ministry is designed to show how he actually heals the soul. In other words, the physical healings in the New Testament, as well as being important in their own right, are visual aids to teach us something about the deeper and more fundamental healing of the soul. And if we knew our Old Testaments well, we would expect that 
to be the case because when the prophets spoke about the Messiah coming, they spoke of his work of redemption and and, uh, liberation in terms that very often had to do with physical ailments and sicknesses. And we read an example of that in Isaiah 35. When the Messiah would come, the blind would see, and the deaf would hear, the dumb would speak, and the lame would walk. But that very passage in Isaiah tells us that these are the redeemed of the Lord who come with singing unto Zion. They've been liberated. So it's quite obvious that even though these physical healings are real and important enough, they are only symbolic of something deep and spiritual that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing in the souls of people. And with all reverence, what use would a Messiah be if he didn't do that? What use would a Messiah be if he gave us sight and ears and the ability to walk, but didn't save our souls. What use is that? It would be very temporary, of no lasting eternal benefit. So the Old Testament taught the people of God to expect, taught the world to expect, a Saviour who would perform deep spiritual work in the souls of his people, analogous to the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, and the paralysed walking. I think you could say that the connection actually is even deeper than that. You can go further and say that the different physical conditions highlight different aspects of our spiritual conditions. Let me put it this way. Blindness represents ignorance. Deafness represents disobedience and stubbornness. Muteness represents our inability to praise and to magnify the name of God. Lameness and paralysis represent our inability to do the Lord's work in this life. Leprosy represents the loathsome and irreversible decay of the soul. And the fact of the matter is that all of us suffer from all these things. And perhaps it's any one of these that the Holy Spirit may bring home to us, or all of them together. In fact, sometimes the Bible doesn't speak of us as being sick, but dead. Dead in trespasses, and sins, because that's what we really are. But by bringing sicknesses to the fore, it helps us to see in what sense we're dead, blind, stubborn, deaf, unable, and so on. So these things should be borne in mind when we see this young paralytic being brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, clearly, at this point, This early in our Lord's ministry in Galilee, his fame is already spreading. And after a very brief sojourn outside the main town, he comes back into it and he can hardly come in without a crowd gathering. And he's stationed in a house, teaching in a house, 
and there's a thick throng inside the house and outside the house. And Mark tells us that he is preaching the word in the house. That, we remember, is always the Lord's first duty. That is the highest part of his ministry, to proclaim the word of God. But as he preaches, our attention is drawn to five men. One is a sick man on a stretcher, a makeshift bed, and the other four are his friends who are carrying him into the presence of Christ. Now the key thing to note about them all, right away, the five of them, the four plus one, is that they all have faith. We know that the paralytic has faith because he is healed, and without faith there is no healing. And in connection with the four friends, the Lord says specifically that they had faith too. In verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, and that is a reference to the four men who led down the bed on which the paralytic was lying, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sons are forgiven you, your sins are forgiven you. It may be a little awkward for us to understand what the faith of the four has to do with the sins of the paralytic, but let's just leave that for a moment. All we need to notice right now is that these four men have faith. When Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. So all five have faith. Now with God's help, let's look for a time at the faith of the paralytic and the faith of his four friends. And may the Lord help us to find ourselves as we look at them. Let's begin not with the paralytic, but with his friends. Now, faith, of course, is an inward thing. It's God's gift. It's located in the heart. In that way, it's secret or invisible. But the fact is that it always reveals itself. The nature of the tree reveals itself in the fruit that it bears. And if a person has faith, it just simply shows itself. It comes out in the tongue, in the hands, in the feet. And of course, it's no different with these men here. Their faith can't be hidden. It's faith that they have when they take their young friend to Christ in order to be healed. It's not simply um, just a random hope but it's real faith in Christ, and Christ says so. He says so in verse 5, and that has something to do with the healing. Now, let me just say a couple of things about their faith. And this isn't an attempt to define it. Uh, It's not even going to try to exhaustively describe it, but just a couple of things about it. First of all, it's a compassionate faith, and true Christian faith is always a compassionate faith. By that I mean very simply that it cares about others. It cares about the souls of other people, whether they are Christians or not. Now this is a a really important thing. It doesn't matter how pious or 
externally religious our life is. If our souls lack this, then we have no real reason to believe that our um, piousness or our religion is nothing less than piosity or a mere religious sham. No reason at all. If the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, we must not just love God in return, but love others also. And as John tells us so often, more than once, it's one of the tests of our discipleship. Whether we have the love of Christ in us, whether we are able to love our brethren. And just as these men are concerned to bring their friend to Christ, well, so really should we be. And it's important to ask ourselves to what extent that is a part of our lives at all. Are we genuinely burdened for the souls of those whom God has placed in our providence? And I, I put it like that because it's easier to measure like that. I mean, some people are often very taken up with people who are far away and with whom we have little to do. But it's far more suitable to ask yourself whether you are able to love and to care for those whom God has actually placed in your circle. There are different ways of taking such people to Christ. The first and most obvious way is by praying for them. And unless we do that sincerely, then I suppose nothing else avails anyway. But that's a lot. To take people to Christ at the throne of grace. Another way, of course, to take them to Christ is by taking Christ to them by witnessing to them, speaking to them about their souls and about the gospel. And when all said and done, the fact of the matter is that that is easier done when we are living close to the Lord and it is hard to do when we are living at a distance from the Lord. If you are honest as a Christian, you will probably see your own life like that. When you were near the Lord, walking closely with him, the easier it was to commend your Lord and Saviour. When for whatever reason your spiritual life dried up, so did your witness and your commendation of Christ to your friends. Another way, of course, in which you can bring people to Christ is by giving them the scriptures. What better gift to give than to put the word of God into the hands of those who need to hear it. In this case, these four people took their friend to where Christ was preaching. And really, in many ways, what better could you do for your friends than to bring them to the house of God? Now, it's not easy to bring people to the house of God for a whole host of reasons. There are lots of reasons why people are perhaps reluctant to come to church may be more reluctant than they used to be. And it doesn't help that we talk ourselves out of it by making it an even more complicated and more forbidding thing than it actually is. Now, I've probably said this here before. I know I said it in my previous congregation very often, but I often hear people say, oh, it's so difficult to take people to church because it's so strange to them. Well, if, if you keep talking that up, it will be really, really 
really strange, but it's not really as strange as you think. It's not as strange as you think. That's just the devil's way of trying to discourage you from asking that. If you can sit here yourself and hear the word of God preached, is it absolutely inconceivable that your friend might not be able to do the same? Is it not worth asking or giving it a go? They obviously took this young man to Christ and it's a challenge for ourselves to bring people where the word of God is preached. So true faith is a compassionate faith. We need to care for the lost. You know, the devil will very often try to isolate us. He will try to make us obsessed with our own situations. He will try to narrow and narrow our sphere of influence and our circle of friends so that eventually we have nothing to say to anybody. Don't let the devil do that. Don't let the devil do that. There are people who may need to hear something from your mouth as well as mine. Let's care for souls. You'll notice also that true faith is a persistent and determined faith. And by that I mean simply that it overcomes obstacles. There's something about faith that's got to get hold of its object. It's so mixed with love, it needs the person it loves. Faith in Christ has got to get to Christ, and it can't stop until it reaches Christ. And nothing will stand in its way. Here this is obvious. I mean, these four men could easily give up. The, the crowd, not just inside but outside the house, was so thick and dense and the temperature around was such that nobody was willing to give anyone else room or to make space for anybody else. It would be easy to conclude that it's just not going to happen today. Uh, let's just leave it and it might happen another day. But again, the greater your faith and urgency and desire the, the more likely you are just not to accept that or to stop at that. What they did, of course, is famous. They went up the external steps of the house, which itself wasn't easy to do. People did, of course, live quite often on the roof in those days. That sometimes where people had fellowship. It sometimes functioned as a secret place. The, the roofs in those days in the Middle East were flat, and uh, they consisted of uh, rafters and beams, some brushwood, and a kind of fairly thick tile. I mean, the word used here in the Greek is serasmos, from which we get ceramic. It's a fairly thick tile made of uh, mud uh, with straw, um, baked hard. Um, But it's the kind of thing that could be broken up if you wanted to break it up. It was obviously thick enough to take people on it, but easy enough to break up. And that's what they decided to do. I mean, it's not a normal thing to do, but it's what they wanted to do. It's what they felt they had to do, because they cared for a soul. And they just broke a hole that was sufficiently large to put the bed at an angle and to lower the man down into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the world tells us that where there's a will, there's a way. And there is. Where there's a will, there is a way. If there's a a genuine desire and determination, then you're not going to stop until you've got Christ. 
and until you're sure you've got Christ and you say that my beloved is mine and I am his. There are plenty examples of that in the Bible. As the writer to the Hebrews said, time would fail me if I was going to tell. Take, for example, the blind man outside Jericho. He knew Jesus of Nazareth was passing by and he started to call on his name and people around him told him to be quiet. Now, when lots of people uh, intervene like that, it's very tempting just to, to slink back and forget about it unless you want to get a hold of Christ, unless you've got a condition that only Christ can heal. And, and once that becomes important enough in your life, then what people say and think just doesn't become that important. Too many people's lives are governed by what other people say and think. You need to be able to reach out and lay hold upon the Lord Jesus Christ yourself. It's not about your family or your father or your mother. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that we sometimes have to forget about them completely because we need the Lord. So everyone said to the blind man, be quiet. And we're told in the scriptures that the man actually shouted the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Interestingly, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Which seems to us a strange question. And in fact, it's going to be relevant in a second when it comes to the paralyzed man. What do you want me to do? To see, of course. And the Lord Jesus gives him his sight because he persisted. The Syrophoenician woman, we thought about her not that long ago, she wanted Christ. And after Christ appearing to neglect her and to ignore her and in fact reject her, she still carried on until she got the blessing she wanted. I don't know if you would overcome that. Would you overcome that yourself? A Christ who appeared to ignore you and a Christ who appeared to neglect you and a Christ who actually rejected you. He should look that way when he turned to her as a, as a Canaanite woman, essentially, and said, it is not right to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. You'd go home. You'd go home unless... unless you wanted something that only the Lord could give you. Then you won't go home. I remember hearing in a former congregation, and having been to a few, you can't guess which one it is, so it's harmless for me to say, but I remember in a former congregation, someone told me of a person who had turned up at the prayer meeting on a Wednesday evening. And at the door, someone said to this person, why are you here tonight? And she took it badly and went home and never came back to the prayer meeting. Now, I, I'm not here to defend what the man said. I don't know the spirit in which he said it. Was it something that he meant in a better way than she took it? I don't know. And people need to be careful what they say to people who are appearing at the prayer meeting for the first time. Having said all that, I find it mighty strange that a person who really wanted to be there allowed that to keep them back. If you really, really wanted to be in the house of God, you would go there. You would go there. That's what I mean. Faith just won't be stopped. Faith won't allow anything between yourself and the Saviour in whom you believe. Jacob, of course, famously, as he wrestled with God, would not let God go until God blessed him. 
It's because of that that his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, from being a supplanter to being a prince with God. And that's the attitude we need to get a hold of as well, not letting God go until he blesses us. That must be your spirit. Always forward, not back. Always going forward, not going back. Now, Christ always rewards this kind of faith. And here we come to the interesting expression in verse 5, that it's when Jesus saw their faith that he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven you. Like I said right at the beginning, (coughs) what possible connection is there between that man's sins being forgiven and his four friends' faith? It's not obvious what the connection is. But there obviously is a connection. There is a connection. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. That's pretty much telling us that even though Christ is addressing the young man, and he's addressing him about his condition, his paralysis and his sins, he's actually also addressing the four friends who took him. He wants them to be encouraged, in other words, by what he's saying to the young man. He wants them to know that their effort in bringing him to the Lord is an effort that he acknowledges and that he rewards. So that his speech to the young man effectively becomes a word of blessing to them too. Their prayers are answered as well. You know, the good you do to others will always come back to you, friends. The good you do to others will always come back to you. God sees to it that it works that way. And that's why the Lord here isn't just interested in the paralytic man. He's also interested in the four friends. And their faith is rewarded there and then. Sometimes the good you do takes a little while to come back to you. But come back at will. Cast your bread upon the waters, and you shall find it after many days. And how many of you have been long on the Christian path and you can look back at so many ways, so many times, in which the Lord has given back for what you gave him. I'm not talking financially here. I'm not excluding that, but that's not what I'm talking about. He just remembers your kindnesses and your faith, and he rewards them. He rewards these things. So that's the faith of the four men. But what about the faith of the man? Now, we're not told a lot about it directly. But it's very interesting what Christ said to him, is it not? After all, he's a paralytic. And the first words Jesus spoke are, your sins are forgiven. I mean, surely a paralytic man just wants rid of his paralysis. But if he just wanted rid of his paralysis, why did Christ say this? Your sins are forgiven you. I think the only way really in which we can understand that is by understanding that this man's paralysis wasn't his biggest problem. 
And that's not just from our point of view, but from his own. He knew that his paralysis wasn't his biggest problem either. It wasn't his biggest burden. He had a bigger burden than paralysis. I don't know if you're aware that the word forgive in the Greek means to carry away a burden. And when the Lord says your sins are forgiving you, he is effectively releasing him from a burden. The burden is not the paralysis. The burden is sin. And the man has come to know that. And I suppose that's really why he wants these friends to be involved in bringing him to the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees himself having two burdens. He's burdened with paralysis and he's burdened with sin. One's destroying his life, the other's destroying his soul. And there's no doubt which is greater. Although the world doesn't see it like that. I mean, here you are tonight and let's say you're really ill. And you have Christ. And beside you there's a person who's perfectly healthy. But doesn't have Christ. I know who I would rather be. And that's not me speaking lightly of illness. I know who I would rather be. When we really understand what sin is. What it's doing to us. And where it eventually takes us. We'll be burdened by it. And we'll see it as a far greater problem than anything else that we have in our body. In fact, I I wonder if God allowed the burden of paralysis to come into this young man's life to make him think and consider. Because that's just very often the way it works. The Lord strikes people low in order to bring them to think about the deeper, the more serious and the more spiritual questions. Questions that people just don't ask as long as they're just running around, not really thinking. Well, a paralysis really makes a person stop and think. This man can't obviously move much at all. Can he move anything? I've no idea, but he has to be carried around from place to place. I was thinking of Thomas Chambers, who became a minister in Kilmany in Fife at the age of 21. And his great interest in life wasn't really theology. It was mathematics, astronomy and chemistry. And once he got his charge, he spent six months of the year in St Andrews teaching these subjects and he went back to his congregation for six months, which he considered a bit of a waste of time. (coughs) He spent two days out of every week in these six months preparing to preach The other six days in the week were given to maths, astronomy, chemistry and recreation. That's the great Thomas Chalmers for you for the first eight years of his ministry. Till God took bereavements into his family and laid himself low with a sickness from which he didn't think he would recover. Three years later when he appeared in the pulpit he was a very different man. A very different man, and everybody knew he was a different man because the Lord had struck him low. And he struck him low to teach him spiritual lessons. And he rose up from his own paralysis, changed man. Jacob had become Israel. Thomas Chalmers became the Thomas Chalmers in the hand of God. That's what I mean by saying that sometimes 
God uses affliction in the body to teach us about affliction in the soul. And although this man lies on a stretcher, his real sickness is his sin. Can you see that yourself tonight, that this is your actual problem? I don't know how you would define it. If I was going to ask you what your problems are in life, I don't know what you would say they were. Maybe for some of you it might even be a serious sickness that you're carrying. But believe me, even that's not your big problem. This is your big problem. Sin. And you can only be loosened from that burden. That burden of sin can only be lifted off or forgiveness given by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and asking him to take away your sin. It's guilt, it's punishment, it's judgment. And if you do that, then Christ says to you what he said to the paralytic, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven you. Now, there's a few people in the crowd who are already starting to notice this man, the scribes. And when they hear this expression from the lips of the Lord, they're actually shocked at it. And in fairness, I suppose we can understand their shock. Who who does this man think he is? No one can forgive sins except the Lord himself. God. Who does this man think he is? Well, that's a good question. And why not ask it? Why not ask it humbly, sincerely, and earnestly? And you'll get a good answer. You know, it's, it's easy enough to ask a question. Um, but if they had asked it properly, would the Lord not tell them? If they had ears to hear, they would hear it. It is a good question. I would tend to think from our Lord's language here about the Son of Man having power or authority on earth to forgive sins. I wouldn't find it difficult to believe anyway. Let me just put it that way. I wouldn't find it difficult to believe that that was the theme of his preaching in the house. Himself as the Son of Man. Now, very often that's interpreted as though it was laying emphasis on his human nature. Understandably so. But the Son of Man is actually a figure that appears in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, and Daniel chapter 7, where he is quite clearly a divine figure with divine authority. The amazing thing about this divine figure is that he is actually called the Son of Man. It's quite difficult to understand how this divine figure in Daniel 7 who has a universal and everlasting kingdom, it's quite an amazing thing how he can be called the Son of Man. Of course, that is is a hint, and more than a hint in the Old Testament, that God is assuming human nature, that God is becoming a man and coming into the world. Now, it's very easy to believe that Christ is speaking on aspects of these things as much as the people are able to bear on who the Son of Man is, and himself as the Son of Man. So how does Christ respond? He knows that they're reasoning in their hearts that he is speaking a blasphemy. He knows that. How does he respond? Well, first he knows what they're thinking. He can see it in their faces. He can hear it more or less. 
Now, Christ could easily climb down at this point and say something like this. Well, you're misunderstanding me. I'm not really doing the forgiving here. I'm just declaring the forgiveness. It's God that's forgiving this young man. And, And I'm just telling him that because he's got faith that his sins are forgiven. Pretty much like what Nathan did, Nathan the prophet. You remember after David had grievously sinned with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. Nathan came to visit David to confront him with his sin. And and David is convicted of his sin. And Nathan the prophet says to him that God has put away your sin. Now Nathan is just declaring that as a prophet for God. He's, he's not forgiving him himself. He's just declaring that God is actually forgiving him. Now Christ could have taken that ground. He could have climbed down and said, well, there's no need to get so upset. I'm just declaring to this young man that because he has faith that God has forgiven him. But that's not at all how the Lord speaks. He actually claims to be the divine figure of Daniel 7 who has all power and authority, even though he is called the Son of Man. Yes, he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I am healing this man. I'm doing it on the basis of who I am and the authority that I possess as Son of God, Son of Man. I do it in my own name, not in the name of my Father. And I do it by my own authority and not by the authority of my Father. And to prove it, he says, watch this. Which is easier? Is it easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say to this young man, get up and walk? Which is easier? Well, of course Neither is easy. They both require the power of God. It's God alone who can remove a paralysis like this from nowhere. And it's God alone who can forgive sins. So effectively Christ is saying, if I can tell this young man now to get up and walk, will you believe that I also have the authority to say your sins are forgiven? So he turns to the young man and he says, get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks. As much as to say, there you are. That's my authority to forgive sins. That's who I am. And that's what I'm here to do. Not just to heal paralytics and lame and blind and deaf. But to give life to the soul. To forgive sins. To take away those burdens. To renew fellowship between God and man. To make new, whole men, women and children. That's what I do. That is who I am. Get up and walk. (laughs) The young man, of course. He doesn't respond by saying, I can't, I'm paralyzed, does he? He just gets up and walks. Why? Because he believes in Christ. He believes that the forgiveness of sin that Christ has just pronounced is very, very real. And therefore he believes in the power of Christ 
to help him through life. The same one who forgives him is the one who empowers and enables him. And that's what faith is all about. Faith is about accepting what the Lord gives you and moving forward in that strength. That's why faith receives and acts. Faith receives and it works by love. It is as simple as that. Once you realise who it is that's giving you this great gift, you will just cast all on him. He'll look after you. He'll look after you in connection with your husband, with your wife, with your family, with your work, with problems, whatever. As the world says, let the chips fall. I mean, God will ordain where the chips fall. But you just need to do it. Because you have to. Faith has to get to Christ. May the Lord bless these thoughts in this world. Let us pray. O Lord, O God, we praise you for the power to see and to hear and to walk, for the strength you give your people, all of which flows from the forgiveness of sins, without which we have nothing. But how good to know that the Christ who gives us that freely gives us all things and will withhold no good from them that uprightly do live. Enable us to see tonight what our greatest need is and what the greatest gift that we can receive is. And like the other man who had a withered and paralyzed hand, help us, Lord, to stretch out that hand and to take what is freely given. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our last uh, singing is in Psalm 119. and at verse uh, 57 Thou my sure portion art alone which I did choose O Lord I have resolved and said that I would keep thy holy word verse 59 I thought upon my former ways and did my life well try and to thy testimonies pure my feet then turn die. I did not stay nor linger long as those that slothful are, but hastily thy laws to keep, myself I did prepare. 57 to 60, let's stand and sing. <laughs>